We are in the book of Mark, our study uh, this morning. will take us through Mark chapter 9. And as you can see, we have quite a few verses to cover this morning. And I want to take uh, as much advantage of the time that we have together this morning as possible. Get through it and still be timely in our finishing. So <coughs> without further ado, let's jump into our lesson before... I do that, let me pray for us, and then we will jump right into the study of Mark chapter 9, 14 through 15. Father, we are humbled before your holy presence. I am thankful that I am in the midst of your remnant, Lord, your faithful remnant that, that you have caused to be faithful. I'm humbled by that thought. Lord, I, I'm humbled by the fact that we convene to worship you, to glorify you. And we do, Lord, because you are worthy. You and you alone are worthy of our praise and, and our worship. I pray that you would help us to worship you well as we study your word. Help us to remember that we are not an audience at this point, Lord, that we worship you. Guard our minds from distraction. Guard our minds from wandering off and help us to focus on your word so that through it we can be strengthened. We may grow in your word, Lord, and in our walk with you. Pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Hopefully you have found your way to a handout, and the verses are far too much to read all at once. So we'll just go through the verses as we go along in our study. By way of introduction, I want to just make a few opening statements. One, our lesson, as you can see from the outline, is composed of two sections this morning. The first section will deal with faith. And the second section will deal with discipleship. Those are the themes of this morning, faith and discipleship. That is also the title of today's lesson. The, the, the first section of our study takes us from verses 14 through 29. And as the major point of 14 through 29, I have titled that a doubting faith, a doubting faith. That serves as the main header for the first section of our study this morning. I'll give you the, uh, the, the sub point, the sub header in just a bit. You actually have it there in your outline. But let me just say a few things about a doubting faith, this first part, this first section of our study. It actually begins not in verse 14, but earlier in the Transfiguration. If you were here last week, you, you studied along with us uh, as Jeff took us through the event of the Transfiguration. And what a glorious event it was. Our study this morning, the first section of it, that is, uh, traces back to verse 9 of 
Mark chapter 9. Traces back to the transfiguration. The transfiguration, just by way of reminder for us this morning, was marked by two central actions we learned last week. There was the ascending up to the mountain that marked the first action, and then there was the descending down from the mountain that marked the second action of the transfiguration. This ascending and descending is reminiscent of a few other portions of Scripture. For example, Moses and his ascending and descending Mount Sinai, and Elijah and his ascending and descending Mount Horeb. These two actions, one commentator wrote, and I thought this was appropriate, capture the interplay between the journey inward to God and the journey outward to the world. In other words, they're symbolic. They're symbolic of the Christian walk, faith in itself, as we find ourselves often ascending and we find ourselves often as believers descending in our walk, ascending with anticipation and descending in challenge, in doubt. It is against this backdrop, and by the way, in, the, in your uh, handout, in the introduction, I would, I would please uh, ask that you write the descent as, as this first uh, point of ours, the descent in verse 9. But it is against this backdrop of the descent that our lesson takes place this morning. It's also worth noting, just very quickly, that the juxtaposition of the transfiguration and the demoniac deliverance that is the subject of our first section of study underscores the central theme of faith in verses 14 through 29. With that said, look with me at the first verses, 14 through 18, under this doubting faith, Mark uses this account of the demoniac deliverance, and he characterizes this demoniac deliverance in the following fashion to underscore and deal with the topic of faith. This demoniac deliverance is characterized first by the dispute, verses 14 through 18. When they came back to the disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and some scribes arguing with them. Immediately when the entire crowd saw him, they were amazed and began running up to greet him. And he asked them, what are you discussing with them? And one of the crowd answered, teacher, I brought you my son possessed with a spirit which makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it slams him to the ground, and he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and stiffens out. I told your disciples to cast it out, and they could not. This is as Jesus descends from the transfiguration, he, he immediately encounters a challenge, and the challenge is in this demoniac deliverance account that Mark provides for us, and there is a dispute, we're told, that Jesus finds 
the scribes and his disciples, the remaining nine disciples, in the middle of. The descent leads Jesus, Peter, James, and John to reunite with the disciples, and immediately there is a struggle that they find upon descending from the mountain where the transfiguration has occurred. Jesus finds that the nine disciples that had stayed behind are disputing or they're arguing with the scribes in the middle of a large crowd. And why are they arguing? The story will tell us in just a little bit. The nine disciples, it's good to know, had not remained idle while Jesus and John and Peter and James were up on the mountain in the transfiguration. They had, they had continued to minister. That is a good thing. They had continued to minister, but the absence of Jesus from the nine had a severe impact on their ministry. Verse 15 confirms that the absence of Jesus is sorely felt by both the disciples and the crowd. How do we know that? We're told in verse 15 that when the crowd saw Jesus coming over their way, they were amazed and ran to greet him. I don't know if you've ever witnessed a fight break out, but when a fight breaks out, unfortunately, people don't usually just walk away. They tend to watch the whole thing. And the only way that you get a crowd to break away from a scene like a public dispute is if there's something more interesting going on. And that's exactly what happens. In verse 15, not only do the disciples desperately miss Jesus, but the crowd is wondering, where's the one we came to see? They're entertained by the fight, but they immediately run off. And that word there in verse 15, amazed, is an interesting one. It means literally to, to, uh, to have a, a, an astonishing trembling or, or, or to tremble because of an astonishment. The, the absence of Jesus had caused the crowd to, to be amazed at, at his very return, at just seeing him. They were amazed. The crowd was willing to walk away from a public dispute to go greet Jesus. It should also be noted that while it's not unusual that Jesus amaze, amazes a crowd, usually there was a preaching or a miracle done before or to cause that amazement. That's not the case here. They're just astonished because Jesus is back. They're astonished because he's back. They're astonished also because they know that this man is unlike any other man. He is Jesus. Should be noted for us this morning that Mark doesn't explicitly state this, but it is implied as we read these verses. Though the crowd was mixed with people who believed and people who were just curious and people who were wondering and, and hadn't made up their mind, it is, it is inevitable, it is beyond doubt that the crowd is amazed at this point 
about Jesus because deep down they know not only that he is unlike any other man they have ever seen, they know that he is God. Whether the crowd is there willing to accept, willing to bow to God, what they had heard and what they had seen from Jesus confirmed and caused the amazement that we're told of in verse 15. Verse 16, Jesus poses the obvious question. He wants the scribes to tell him what they're arguing about with the disciples. And it's interesting, verse 16 has a bit of humor in it because the, the, the silence that is conveyed in verse 16 is, is deafening. And the only other time that I know of where someone asks a question and there's just silence is when I ask a question of my boys and they know they're in trouble and they're just not going to dime themselves out. They know enough to say, I'm just not going to say anything. And that's exactly what's going on here. The, the silence is deafening because the silence accuses. The silence is the consequence of shame, of embarrassment from the scribes and the disciples because notice nobody answers. Everybody just stays quiet. The silence is deafening in verse 16 and the silence takes us to verses 17 and 18 where this deafening silence is broken up, we're told, by someone in the crowd, a voice in the crowd that answers Jesus' question. The voice comes from the father of the son who is the subject of this demoniac possession he breaks the silence up by telling jesus that his son is possessed and consequently mute in verse 18 he provides us some insight into what this demoniac possession has done to his son look at verse 18 it, it seizes him it slams him to the ground it foams at the mouth, it grinds his teeth, stiffens out, he stiffens out. We don't see this here, but Mark's, uh, Matthew's parallel account adds, and he's a lunatic. So this demoniac possession had some very physical, very real and physical consequences. And, and by the way, Matthew adds, he was thought of as a crazy person. And to the dismay of the disciples, the father informs Jesus that in light of Jesus' absence, the father turns to the nine disciples for help, but they were unable to cast the demon out. This dispute leads us to the second characterization of this demoniac deliverance, which is disbelief. So we have the dispute, and then we have the disbelief verses 19 through 24. Look at these verses. And he answered them and said, O unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. Verse 20, they brought the boy to him, and when he saw him, immediately the spirit threw him into a convulsion, and falling to the ground, he began rolling around and foaming at the mouth. He asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood, it has often thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. And this is where it really gets interesting. But if you can do anything, 
Take pity on us and help us. 23, and Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately, the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe, help my unbelief. What a, what a beautiful section of scripture we have. I'd ask you to notice very briefly verse 19 because verse 19 carries in it an indictment. It's, it's actually a stinging indictment, an, an accusation from Jesus. And there's, there's some question, there's some scholarly disagreement about who the intended audience is of this indictment. I mean, it, it, it's true that this indictment that Jesus delivers in verse 19 applies to the crowd, it applies to the scribes, but in this specific case, in verse 19, the indictment is directed toward his disciples. Jesus indicts his own disciples. And that is fascinating. And the reason he indicts his own disciples is because they should know better at this point. Jesus' exasperation and frustration and lament is expressed as he says in verse 19, O unbelieving generation. And he follows that expression of frustration by two rhetorical questions. These, th this expression followed by the rhetorical questions convey Jesus' sentiment about the Father's report to him that his disciples were unable to cast the demon out. How could this be? How is it possible that the disciples that have walked with him for over two years now were unable to cast the demon out? In light of especially the fact that just a few chapters ago, chapter 6, they are empowered to go on a temporary ministry. And they did much of this. They delivered demoniacs. They performed miracles. They preached God's word. And now just... A few chapters after six, they are unable to cast out this demon. A few things to understand here about the why, the question why. How could this be? Why were they unable to cast this demon out? We have to understand first that you might be tempted to judge the disciples at this very point. I was. I was saying in my mind, these guys, man. Unbelievable, Peter. I get, well, Peter, I mean, I can't blame Peter because he was in the transfiguration. But I was, I was thinking, man, but the reality is that the disciples are simply emblematic of us in this case. The, the ups and the downs, the, the, the faith and the doubt, the, the ability followed by the inability. It just, it is just emblematic, emblematic of us. And so if you're tempted to judge the disciples, for their inability, don't. That's what I had to tell myself, and I'll encourage you not to either. Understanding the journey and what's going on here helps us understand what the purpose of Jesus is with this indictment. His Galilean ministry has come to an end, basically. He is going to focus here on out on instruction for the disciples. Why? Because he's en route to Jerusalem. And what's in Jerusalem? his impending death. He is en route to accomplish the purpose that he came to earth for. 
And as a result, his ministry has ended. His public ministry has ended at this point. And he is focused now on teaching the disciples some very important things that they must learn. Most importantly in this instruction is the fact that they have to understand that in the span of just a few months, Jesus will no longer be with them as he has been. They will be forced to stand on their own faith. They will be forced to pray on their own. They won't have the security and the comfort of Jesus' physical presence with them in a short while. And so it's crucial for Jesus to teach them some big lessons. First and foremost, you have to stand on your own faith. You have to actually believe because I'm not always going to be here with you. Verse 20, we see that Jesus says at the end of verse 19, bring him to me. And, and in verse 20, they, they bring the, the son, this young man, to Jesus. And immediately there's an adverse reaction. And I just point this out to you very quickly. The, the irony cannot be missed here. It's too thick. Uh, the reaction that the, the demon has when the, the son is brought before Jesus is caused because he knows, this demon, exactly who Jesus is. And he also knows exactly what's about to happen to him. And it's interesting. I think Mark does this on purpose. But at that very moment, the demon that possesses the son has less doubt about Jesus than Jesus' own disciples. That was fascinating. That was fascinating to learn. 21 and 22 are continue this, this story. And in, in verse 21, Jesus poses a question that I want to just point your attention to very quickly. He says in verse 21, how long has this been happening to him? And it's, it's interesting because think about the question. It's, it's, it, it comes seemingly, right, as you read this account, at the wrong time, and you wonder, what does that have to do with anything? Why are you asking that? I, I, it's, it's a perfect question, though, when you think about it. I, it's not as if Jesus was asking because there's a statute of limitations on healing, right? Like, or or uh, deliverance. Like, if, if he's been possessed for 10 years, well, then I'm not going to do it. I mean, he's not asking for that reason. How long has this been going on with him? And, and he asked the question when, verse 21, <laughs> when, the, when the son is convulsing in front of him. The, the, the demon is, is manifesting itself, and, and he convulses, and, he, and he, he's throwing himself on the ground. And that's when Jesus decides to ask the father this question. And you have to ask, why? Why at that point would Jesus do this? He does it to have the father understand that he has come not to some displaced, faraway power for help. He has come to the person of Jesus. He has come to Jesus, who is a person like him, who can empathize, who understands what life is like. And he's asking this question to have the father respond and understand, hey, I care about what you're going through. This is a wonderful point of application 
Jesus is not just a distant savior for us. Jesus can relate to us like no other because he lived here on earth. And he cares about the situations that we go through, our challenges, that which challenges our faith, Jesus cares about. Verses 21 and 22 take care of that, of, of presenting that care for us. 23, look at 23. 22, I'm sorry, let me, go, let me go up to verse 22 very quickly. But if you can do anything, the Father is responding to, to Jesus, and he says in this response, but if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. The, the possession, the demoniac possession of his son has impacted him in a very real way. There's no doubt about that. It has impacted him in a very real way. It has impacted his faith. His faith is waning at this point. You see that in verse 22 where he says, if you can. Jesus' response in verse 23 is, if? If you can? Followed by an amazing statement in verse 23, all things are possible for him who believes. It's not here that Jesus is saying that if you become a Christian, if you believe, if you have faith in Christ, that anything you want and anything you can think of, you get. That's not what Jesus is saying. What he's actually saying is faith in God, no matter how small, is faith in a God who can do those things that are impossible for man to do. That's the point of Jesus' statement there. Faith, no matter how big, how small, is faith in a God that can do the impossible. This is an encouraging statement for the Father. All things are possible for him who believes. Verse 24, immediately the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe, help my unbelief. Has anybody ever felt like that? Your hand shot up, and I appreciate it so much because my hand shot up. This is me, and I'm not ashamed to admit it to you. This is me consistently. I do believe, Lord, help my unbelief. There's, there's faith, but there's also doubt mixed in with faith. Oftentimes, as believers here on earth, we are afflicted with doubt in our faith. And this man gives Jesus an honest confession. Let me just deal with these uh, last two points. Verses 25 through 27, the demoniac deliverance is characterized by the deliverance. Look at these verses, 25 through 27. When Jesus saw the crowd was rapidly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you deaf and mute spirit, I command you, come out of him. Do not enter him again after crying, out and throwing him into a terrible into terrible convulsions it came out and the boy became so much like a corpse that most of them said he is dead but Jesus took him by the hand and raised him and he got up that is the deliverance no, it, uh, yes 25 through 27 excuse me 25 through 27 the deliverance the demoniac the demoniac Deliverance is characterized by the deliverance itself in verses 25 and 27. 
This is really the culmination of, of the account, right? Jesus, Jesus delivers this, this young man, this, this son of this father with doubting faith. Jesus commands the spirit to come out. It is a rebellious spirit. Reluctantly, it comes out. Verse 26 tells us that, that in coming out, it manifests one last time. And the manifestation is so strong in verse 26 that, that when he finally comes out, the kid appears like he is dead. The beauty of that section there is that it didn't really matter. We're not sure if he was actually dead or if he just appeared to be dead, but it didn't really matter because Jesus, Lord of Demoniac possessions and death was there. So verse 27 says that he walks over to the boy and picks him up by the hand, and the boy just got up. That is the deliverance. And then finally, the demoniac uh, deliverance is characterized by the dismay. Verses 28 and 29. This was expected, right? The question from the Disciples, we knew it was coming when he came into the house. His disciples began questioning him privately. Why could we not drive it out? He said to them, this kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. So there you go. That's, that's the first section of our study. It starts with a descent. It is a demoniac deliverance that is characterized by the dispute, by the disbelief by the deliverance, and by the dismay. Just a few comments by way of application. I mentioned to you just a bit ago that I can identify and many of us can identify with the Father. I do believe, help my unbelief. When the topic of faith comes up, and it doesn't come up enough, sadly, it is important that we understand that what this story relates to us, this, this demoniac deliverance relates to us, is yes, the importance of faith. Understand that when we believe in God, when we have faith in Christ, again, I repeat to you, we are believing not in some God that is dead, not in some man that pretended to become a God and, and then died. No, we believe in God, the creator of heaven and earth. We believe in his son, who is the one that conquered death. We believe in a God that can do the impossible. And that should be an encouragement to us this morning. But I'd also like to encourage you, for those of you that may be going through doubt in your faith, for those of you that may find yourselves on the descent right now instead of the ascent, I'd like to encourage you with the account of the Father and Jesus. Notice that Jesus doesn't accuse this Father because of his faith. Jesus doesn't accuse this Father because of his doubt. Once again, Jesus is a person that is empathizing with this Father. And he doesn't accuse him he just says, believe, believe, because if you believe, you're believing in something, in someone that can do the impossible. And Jesus does do the impossible. He delivers his son. But understand this morning that it is not the amount of faith, it is not the amount of faith 
that we have that Jesus is concerned with. The parallel account to this in Matthew says, have I not told you that if you believe like that of a mustard seed, it's not, a, not the amount of faith. Jesus understands that we are human, that we are weak, that we will ebb and flow. He expects us to believe. He is enough to make up the lack of faith. He is enough to strengthen our doubt. He expects us only to believe. And what, are, what, what better thing is there? What greater thing exists to believe in than Jesus Christ? I submit to you this morning that there is nothing, nothing in this world that deserves our faith more than Jesus. More than Christ. We don't have the benefit of having walked with him like the disciples did. And that's why Jesus was so upset with them. That's why he, he delivers that indictment, because they had him. But this, this father of the demoniac-possessed uh, son, he hadn't walked with Jesus. We didn't have that benefit. But even still, there is nothing worth believing in more than believing in Jesus. The testimony of his word, the testimony of what we see in nature. It all speaks to a God who has the power of creation and to a God who has the power to do what is impossible for us if we believe. Faith is not perfect. It is often filled with doubt. But Jesus in his mercy counts our faith and, and does what we consider impossible many times because we believe. If you find yourself on the uh, descending end of faith right now, if you feel yourself challenged or in doubt, I would encourage you, as God's word says, faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. I would encourage you to fill yourself with spiritual benefit. Fill yourself with reading God's word. Fill yourself with prayer. Jesus tells his disciples in the last two verses that this one, this kind, doesn't come out except by prayer. What was he saying? Look, you guys, you're, I, the time is coming. You're going to have to stand on your own two feet because I'm not going to be here in just a few short months. You haven't had to pray up to this point, but you're going to have to start praying on your own. There is no better boost of our faith than prayer to God, than pleading with God through prayer, help my unbelief, increase my faith, Lord. We have to move on to the second point, the dedicated discipleship. But I hope that you're encouraged by this account of faith. And I hope that your faith is, is boosted somewhat, at least, in what we read this morning about faith. To the second point of dedicated discipleship. I will read these verses because they are lengthy, and then I will just have some comments about them. But 
please understand that in verses 30 through 50, uh, a shift occurs from faith to discipleship. And with his impending suffering and resurrection a short time away, Jesus will use this time, as I was mentioning to you, to instruct his disciples. And this is the beginning of that instruction. Specifically, Jesus begins to instruct his disciples on discipleship after his ascension. Dedicated discipleship is what he is looking for, is what he is encouraging his disciples and what he is instructing them on. Dedicated discipleship is marked by humility. Dedicated discipleship is marked by counting the cost. The, the, the theme, the running theme of verses 30 through 50 is dedicated discipleship. And Mark marks dedicated discipleship or defines dedicated discipleship in two ways. First, by humility, and second, by counting the cost. Now, read with me, if you will. This is the lengthy section here. But read with me, if you will, this, this first mark of dedicated discipleship, which is humility, verses 30 through 41. Beginning in verse 30, where from there they went out and began to go through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know about it, for he was teaching his disciples and telling them, the Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. But they did not understand this statement. They came to Capernaum. When he was uh, in the house, he began to question them. What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had discussed with one another which of them was the greatest. Sitting down, he called the twelve and said to them, If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Taking a child, he set him before them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me, and whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me. John said to him, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to prevent him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, do not hinder him, for there is no one who will perform a miracle in my name and be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is for us. For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because of your name as followers of Christ, truly I say to you, he will not lose his reward. So Mark handles this, this topic of dedicated discipleship by making the point that dedicated discipleship is characterized by humility. And in verses 30 through 41, he presents for us three examples of this humility. What does humility look like in a dedicated discipleship to Jesus Christ? In verses 30 through 32, we're given the first look into this. Humility is marked by sacrificial obedience. Notice verses 30 through 32, what is what does Jesus point to as the first example of humility? He points to, this is now the second announcement of his impending death. The first one happened 
in chapter 8, verse 31, and they didn't understand it then. This is the second time that Jesus is referencing the fact that he is going to die. He is going to suffer, he is going to die, and he is going to resurrect. But he uses this example of his impending death to make the point that humility in a dedicated discipleship is marked by obedience, sacrificial obedience. There is no greater sacrifice that we know of than that of Jesus Christ. He gave his life for us when we didn't deserve it. He gave his life for us as sinners. Philippians says that he did not behold his, his position as God, his existence with God, a thing to, to hold on to. But he, he sacrificially obeyed. So Jesus makes the point of sacrificial obedience by way of his own death, by way of his own sacrifice for you and for me. A dedicated discipleship is marked by humility, and humility is expressed first by sacrificial obedience. Sacrificial hu uh, humility is expressed secondly by sacrificial servanthood. And this is in verses 33 through 37. Jesus, continuing here in this section, his, his lesson on humility asks a question. Verses 33 and 34 deal with this question. What's the question? What were you guys talking about? You ever ask, ask that of your kids? What's going on? What were you guys talking about? And look again. What a surprise. The silence is deafening. The silence condemns his disciples. Why? I wouldn't have said anything to Jesus either if I was his disciples and I was talking about what they were talking about. Coming off of the example of sacrificial obedience from God himself who comes down to earth and is going to offer himself to his father on our behalf. What are these dum-dums talking about? I'm better than you. No, you're not. I'm, I'm going to be the greatest. I'm going to be the goat in terms of the disciples. That's what they're talking about. They completely miss the point of humility. That's, that's, the, that's the image. That's what's going on. 35 through 37, Jesus makes a life-altering statement to them to drive home the point. Listen, if you're really concerned about being the goat, you need to be concerned not about who has the first place, but about who has the last place. Greatness in discipleship, greatness in the kingdom of God is defined not by who sits at the first chair. It is defined by a sacrificial servanthood. You want to be first? Become last. You want to be great? Become a servant of all. That's Jesus' point in these verses. Dedicated discipleship is marked by humility, and humility is marked by service to others. Humility is a matter of not only the heart, it is a matter of our mind also. Philippians chapter 2 encourages us to think humbly of ourselves, to think of others as more important than us, and that is 
a huge struggle, isn't it? I am more important than most, oftentimes. But servanthood, sacrificial as servanthood, as a dedicated disciple of Christ, requires that I think of others greater than myself. That I put others before I put myself. Jesus uses an example at the end of uh, this section in verses 36 and 37 to underscore the, the sacrificial servanthood. And most people think that the child that Jesus used here is, is symbolic of humility. It is not. It is not. It is symbolic of the weakest. It is symbolic of the most insignificant with, uh, within us or around us. Children, like women, were considered uh, secondary in ancient Jewish society. There wasn't much importance given to them because, frankly, they didn't have a lot to offer by way of being helpful. Young children, I mean. So there wasn't a lot of importance given to them. They were kind of thrown off to the side. And so that insignificance, that, that rejection, is what Jesus uses from this child as the example of who should we think of greater than ourselves? Who is more important than us? That person, the marginalized, the rejected, the one that everybody else thinks is insignificant. That person, in order for you and I to sacrificially serve others, that is who we must consider more important than ourselves. Finally, this uh, lesson in dedicated discipleship marked by humility is characterized by sacrificial unity, 38 through 41. Jesus' final lesson here in this section centers on John's confession. And I say to you, what a dummy. I would not have said anything. Honestly, I would have kept my mouth quiet. But John doesn't. He confesses something that he thought Jesus was going to be happy about. He says that on the way, they come across a person who is casting demons out. And, and what does he do? Doesn't give him a pat on the back. Doesn't come to him and encourage him. No, he, he stops him, he says. He's very proud of it. He stops him. They attempted to stop and hinder someone else who was doing the Lord's work. Why? Notice, notice the reason why in verse 38, not because they were concerned he wasn't a follower of Christ, because he wasn't following us, John says. He wasn't doing things the way we do it, Jesus. So I had to stop him. This confession underscores the, the dangerous pride that can arise in all of us. The thought that our tradition, our approach to worship, our approach to singing, our approach to dressing is the only right way to serve Christ. It is not. Dedicated discipleship is marked by humility and humility that is expressed in sacrificial unity. A recognition that we should not divide as Christ's bride, 
for reasons that are not essential. We should not divide for personal preferences or subjective preferences. I don't mean to suggest to you this morning that there's no reason, no cause for which to divide. No, there is. Truth is truth and truth matters. And the gospel must be believed and it must be believed correctly. But this idea that there's one way to sing, there's, there's one way to worship, there's only certain instruments, or you got to wear this, or you got to... has no place in the body of Christ. It has no place in dedicated discipleship. We must be humble enough to understand that we are called to a sacrificial unity. And so if I raise my voice a little bit when I teach, and I have to thank you guys because you guys are always so accepting of me, so accommodating of me. You guys know that I have a Pentecostal background, and it tends to come out still sometimes, and never has anybody said anything about it. I appreciate it. It shows the, the unity. Pastor Tom, I love uh, so much. But I confess to you, 10 years ago, had you asked me, you ever see yourself sitting under the, the teaching of Pastor Tom? I would have said, nope. But, but Christ changes our hearts. Listen, if we are to divide, it should be based on objective biblical truth that someone is departing from. But division should not exist within the body of Christ due to subjective preferences, things that I believe or I prefer that someone else does not. There are true believers, genuine believers, people who love Christ that come from different traditions and different Christian persuasions. That's important for us to understand. I'll close with 42 through 50. Let me just read these verses to you quickly and we'll close with the, the point that Jesus is making here. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe to stumble, it would be better for him if with a heavy millstone hung around his neck, he had been cast into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than having your two hands go in, uh, to go into hell, into the unquenchable fire, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. If your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than having your feet, your two feet, to be cast into hell. The worm does not die, and the fire is not quenched. 47, if your eye causes you to stumble, throw it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell. 48, where the worm does not die, and the, first and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt becomes unsalty, with what will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. The, the first characterization of dedicated discipleship is humility. The second, in verses 42 through 50, uh, characteristic of dedicated discipleship is counting the cost. And that's what Jesus deals with in these verses. It is a call to count the cost. And how do we count the cost? Mark uses 
catch words to drive these points home. Verses 42 through 47, the catch word is causes to sin or causes to stumble. Verses 48 through 49, the catch word is fire. And finally, in verse, verses 49 through 50, the catch word that Mark uses is salt. Causes to stumble is summarized for us in 42 through 47. And what's, what's Jesus' point there? Two points very quickly. One, be careful not to make a little one stumble. By little one there, it is, it is meant one who is very young in his faith or one who is very fragile in his faith. Be very careful as a dedicated disciple to not make him stumble. Because if you do, it would be better, death would be better for you than making him stumble. The second point that he makes here with this catchphrase or catchword causes to sin is personal. It's to us. What's in play here? Heaven. Heaven and hell. And Jesus' point in 43 through 47 is, look, if anything in your life right now is causing you to sin to the extent that it has become habitual in your life and you are risking eternity with God, cut it off. That's what he's saying. Nothing should be more important than making it to heaven for a dedicated disciple. Nothing should be worth sacrificing heaven for. Cut it off. Stop it. If what you're doing, if where you're going, hands, feet, if what you're watching, eyes, is causing you to sin, cut it off. Be extreme. Finally, these last verses that Jesus uses the catchphrase salt, 48 and 49, and, uh, excuse me, fire, 48 and 49, salt in 49 and 50. This is a difficult saying, but the saying has to do with fire and the testing that will come our way in a life of dedicated discipleship. Fire here is symbolic of trials, challenges in the life of a Christian. And if you are a dedicated disciple of Christ, you will face many trials. It is these trials that God uses to crystallize our life as a dedicated disciple. And it is these trials that cause a dedicated disciple to become salt to a world who needs it. who become those who preserve God's word in an unbelieving world. So as a dedicated disciple, we are to expect trials and challenges, but understand that as our faith is tested in that way, it is the fire that God uses to purify us, to confirm us, and it is also what makes us salt in this world.
Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for your mercy and for your goodness and thankful for your word. I pray that you would encourage us today, Lord. pray that you would encourage us in our faith, encourage us to live lives of dedicated disciples, Lord, that are marked by humility. Lord, give us strength the rest of the day. And in this week, I pray in Jesus' precious name, amen.